1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
0: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And the other week, I was reading through an article written by the BBC's Tim Stokes, and it was about John Henry Smythe. You might not have heard of this man, but he was an RAF navigator from Sierra Leone in West Africa, and he was shot down and captured by the Nazis in 1943. Not only was he one of the first black airmen in the Royal Air Force, but after the war, he was the man in charge of the historic voyage of the SS Windrush. In fact, he would go on to have an amazing legal career, he would be involved, in the independence of Sierra Leone, and he'd even go on to meet JFK and Bobby Kennedy. To take us through this man's fascinating personal history, I managed to get the author of that BBC article, Tim Stokes, onto the podcast, and also John's son, Eddie. This history is really one that everyone should know about. Enjoy. Hi, Eddie and Tim, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today?
3: Yeah, doing great, thanks. Um, The pub's open today, but I won't be going there because it's freezing cold. (laughs) But other than that, yeah, doing fine, thanks.
4: Yeah, certainly, doing well early start at least work so a bit jaded but you know we're good
2: yeah a bit jaded no worries at all well you know <laughs> this topic i know for a fact is gonna liven us all up because it is a pretty electric history let's just say that it is really great actually to have you both on the podcast especially given this history that we're discussing which is your family history isn't it eddie especially it's about your father john henry johnny smythe mbe so let's jump straight into it tell us who your father was. And when did he join the RAF?
3: Yeah, John Henry Smythe. He born in 1915, Freetown, Sierra Leone. He joined the RAF in 1940, when Britain called upon its colonies to supply both people and equipment to aid the war effort. And my dad took the view, well, Sierra Leone is part of the British colony, the Queen And at the time, the king is my king, and I will fight for the king and for the British Empire. And he had no hesitation, putting himself forward for selection. He was lucky to be selected, and he came over to Britain and trained and joined the RAF and had a pretty exciting time during the war.
2: How common was it for a man from Sierra Leone to join the RAF and to actually get accepted through to become an officer?
3: Well, he was one of six people chosen. So when the call came through, every red-blooded young man immediately jumped at the opportunity. He was one of six chosen, and he went out. He successfully completed all the training courses, both in the classroom, which was he found very rigorous, and then the operational training. And in his camp, He was not only the only Sierra Leonean, but the only black person. And he was one of six that actually passed out as an officer. So when you successfully complete your training, you achieve at least the rank of a sergeant. But out of the 90 or so
2: that were there, he was one of six that came out as an officer. Wow. So he, he really was one of a small few people who managed to get through from Sierra Leone. And then what's his role in the RAF? What's his first role during the war? Well, what he really wanted to do was fly. And I guess, again, it it must have been the ambition of lots of
3: young men. It seemed like a glamorous thing to do. He wanted to go out. He wanted to fly. So he initially trained as a pilot. He had flown solo in Tiger Moths, as it was, as they used for training at the time. But it was at the time where the RAF had realised that the accuracy of the bombing was extremely poor. It was something like one bomb in every plane load fell within five miles of the target. It was horrendous. And they realized that they needed specialist navigators, because up to that point, the job was done by observers. So all the cadets at the time who had attained high mathematical results in that particular module were invited invited, in inverted commas, to train as navigators. And my dad, he was very disappointed when he was asked to be a navigator. And they said, look, you will be in charge of the plane because you have to take it all the way out there. You've got to find the bombing target and you've got to bring it all the way back. So they obviously buttered them up. And he then switched into training as one of the first navigators, you know, dedicated navigators in the bombing force.
2: We've had actually a navigator on the podcast before, a veteran. Who came on and when he was explaining that role i couldn't think of anything more complex or difficult to get your head around and to work out everything from the wind speed and your velocity to your altitude mixed in with coming up to the target under fire i mean all of that is kind of like doing einstein esque equations under enemy flak fire isn't it what did your dad say about flying in those sort of conditions
3: Well, the interesting thing is he found the navigation very easy. I mean, I could not get over it because I'll declare my hand now. I do fly, but I fly helicopters. So you're flying a lot slower. You're flying with GPS systems, with updated charts, which are, you know, rarely up to date. And you're flying just in the UK. And I found the navigation very, very difficult. The navigators then had to fly at night in planes that were unpressurized. And as you say, under all types of weather into areas where the charts actually weren't that accurate. And it's not only about getting to the country and to the region, but it's also to the target. And they had various navigation techniques they used. And he did, at one time, explain them to me. My dad had incredible memory for things that happened. 50 years before but not so good the things that happened the day before but i remember him explaining to me and i was totally lost but he clearly had an
2: aptitude for navigation and i guess he ended up in the right role yeah someone noticed something about his mind and being able to fulfill that role under pressure and he sounds like he did it pretty well because he had a lot of successful missions didn't he and grew a bit of a reputation for being lucky (laughs) yes (laughs) yes I mean, at that
3: time, the life expectancy of a bomber crew wasn't very high. And the short Stirling bomber, which was what they flew, was the first four-engined plane that the RAF used. And it was very slow, and it couldn't fly very high. So it was very susceptible to anti-aircraft fire from the ground and being shot at by fighter pilots. So the rate of losses was very, very high. And at that time in the RAF, if you successfully accomplished 30 missions, you were basically out. You got your desk job. With the American Air Force, it was 25 missions. If you accomplished 25, it was great. And bear in mind, the Americans flew much, much higher than the RAF did. So they flew at much lower levels. And yes, he went out and he started flying and he kept coming back, you know, and lots of his friends and colleagues didn't come back and they always used to say he had some sort of black magic thing going on, and, and they were always very keen to fly with him. But, of course, his luck did eventually run out.
2: Yes, and we will come to that now. So, Tim, you are a BBC correspondent, and I found this fascinating history because of your articles and your BBC World Service report on this. Now, first of all, where did you first hear about this history?
4: Uh, so i BBC reporter. I'm based with BBC London, and... As well as doing uh, a lot of day-to-day London news, I have a bit of an obsession with the history of the city, all sort of bits and pieces of the city, from some sort of the more well-known things like the history of the Royal Hall to bizarre people like an autograph obsessive in the 20th century who used to send himself in parcels to people and stuff like that. So it's all sort of quirky things like that. And I was chatting to someone at the Museum of London and they just mentioned this story. It's just incredible. And I spoke to Eddie and it just all came from that, really. And the more you hear of this tale... and about Johnny Smiles' life, you just, I know it's incredible, and it seems madness that hasn't been sort of known
2: before this, that very few people know this history. Well, even more people are going to know about it now. We have listeners all around the world, and I'm sure we'll get emails in about this, and I'll direct them towards your article. In fact, we're going to put a link into our bio as well. But take us through the next stage of Johnny's war, Tim, because his luck does run out, doesn't it? Yeah, so Johnny had flown 26
4: successful missions. His plane's been shot out, he's been hit a few times, but he's always got away with it and got back. So it came on to the fatal 27th. It was the 18th of November, 1943, and it was the start of the Battle of Berlin. And Bomber Harris, the Air Chief Marshal of the RAF, he had declared that the RAF would destroy Berlin, and he was like, oh, we'll lose 400, 500 off aircraft, but it'd be worth doing because we will end the war we destroyed Berlin this campaign lasted until about the end of March 1944 and Johnny's mission the 27th was on that first night his plane was one of about 800 which flew off and around 30 didn't make it back one of them was Johnny as they flew over Germany they got hit by anti-aircraft fire and Johnny was hit by shrapnel in two places in his groin and his side Still, the captain said they should carry on. They flew over, continued to fly, dropped their bombs, turned back. But obviously, now down to three engines, they just couldn't fly away so well. And they got spotted by a night fighter who started following them, strafing them. They hit again, another engine dropped out, and they knew they had to get out of the plane. And the captain ordered them to jump. As the second in command, Eddie's was the penultimate one to jump out, and he just parachuted down and he was bleeding away, heavily hurt, but he landed in some woods, hid his parachute and took off on foot. He then saw a tavern and outside of his tavern was uh, bicycles, So I nicked one of those, jumped on and cycled away and then thought, then noticed that a bike is missing from this tavern. So I should really get rid of that. So he got off the bike, threw it into a river and then he spotted a barn. And he's obviously seriously injured. And he thought, wow, that's at last I can just find someone to have a rest. However, he made a fatal error as he walked into the barn and he lit a cigarette.
2: And that is how he was spotted. Oh, wow. I mean, there's so much wrapped up in that, Tim. Bloody hell. Imagine the amount of adrenaline that's pumping through your veins and you finally get to a barn. And I can understand it. I would be walking through like, oh. Time to light a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It's funny you say that,
3: but that's exactly right. And he said he never even realised how badly he was injured because of the adrenaline. He was able to, as Tim articulated so well, you know, steal a bicycle and cycle and go and hide. But he was obviously, by this stage, had got very weak and made his first mistake by lighting a cigarette.
2: Well, Eddie, tell us here. So he lights a cigarette, and I'm assuming at this point someone spots him and some German soldiers are sent on the way. They obviously end up capturing him, but I've got to ask, how does a German soldier react when they see your father, uh, six foot four, black officer emerging from a bomb? What's their reaction here?
3: Well, I think it was total incredulity because they've never seen anything like this before. He was taken to what sounds like a sort of police station type Headquarters, where he was interrogated, and they were saying to him, "What are you doing, dropping bombs on our country? Were you a black man?" And he said, "I'm from Sierra Leone. We're part of the British Empire, and I'm fighting for my king." And he was then interrogated quite harshly. And my dad was a fairly calm person, despite his big size. He was very calm and very, very slow to get cross and lose his temper. But bear in mind how much he'd been bleeding. And he said there was this particular German officer that came and hit him with a gun butt, kicked him in the side. He said, luckily, it wasn't the side where he'd been shot. And he'd fallen to his knees. And he got up and he decided that the next time this guy got in range of him, and you're going to have to excuse me when I say this, but this is what he thought, the next time he comes close, I will grab him and I will snap his neck. Because although I will be killed, at least I'll take him with me. And that was his thought. Fortunately, that never happened. And after the interrogation, and they realised he was weak from loss of blood, he was taken to a hospital that looked after officers, German officers. And he did say for years and years, while he was in prison of camp, he used to see that officer's face. And he used to pray that one day before his time came, he would meet that officer, which obviously he never did. But he was looked after very well in the hospital. And he ended up chatting to a couple of German officers who were in the bed next to him. And they said to him, you know, Johnny, you are so lucky. And he says, why am I lucky? He said, well, for you, the war is over. You're going to prison of war camp and you're going to see the war out over. He said, but for us, as soon as we're mended, we're going to go back into war. And the chances are we're going to be killed. But he was treated very well. And after he left hospital, he was then taken to Stuttgart to be interrogated because he was a bit of a prize. He was different. He was unique. He'd been captured. They had to get some propaganda out of it. And in Stuttgart, he was taken into an office and in walked in a German who spoke perfect Creole. Now, Creole is the language that we spoke in Sierra Leone. And he was amazed. And this guy Told off his soldiers who were looking after him for not giving him water and a razor blade so he could clean himself up. Gave him cigarettes. Come and sit down, Johnny. And they chatted about places in Freetown and people that they knew. They, They knew because this guy worked in Freetown. And he was absolutely delightful. And my dad said all along he was very suspicious. He knew there was something coming. And then the question started. He wanted to know specific answers to some questions about the squadron and their equipment. And at the time, my dad said the only thing he knew that was in the plane, which they destroyed before they parachuted, was the planes used to drop strips of foil. And the strips of foil used to fool the German radar because the radar waves used to reflect off the foil. And at that time, it was something very new. And all the planes carried this foil. And he said before they jumped, they destroyed it. That was the one thing they had to destroy. And there was nothing else he was worried about. But every time he was asked questions, he would just say, Smythe, Johnny, number 114608, which was his number. And that's all he would answer. And after that, the interrogation got worse and he was roughed up and beaten up and ended up back in jail where he sat waiting his fate, thinking, you know, perhaps my time has come. But from there, he was transferred to a prisoner of war camp, which in his case was Stalag Luft 1, which was a camp for officers, where he was reunited with the captain of the plane and one of the other officers on board.
2: Oh, wow, what happened to the rest of the crew? Was it a sad end for them, or were they able to make an escape? Well, it transpires because two of the crew were very badly wounded, and my dad was
3: convinced that the rear gunner had died because he was slumped over the guns and he couldn't get to him. But it turns out that they actually did manage to get out, but of course, they wouldn't have been in an officer's prison of war camp. They would have been in another camp somewhere
2: else. Ah, I see, that makes sense.
5: Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Okay, Tim, we're at the stage now where Johnny is in Stalagluff One. So I'm gonna ask you a question that you asked yourself in your own article. So we're in that sort of situation now, okay? We're in a kind of meta situation. You write that in the clutches of a murderously racist Nazi regime, how did Johnny Smythe survive the war? So tell me, Tim, how did he survive, and how was it in that prison camp? You'd expect in the
4: Nazi regime, of black man in the Nazi regime, you'd face horrible consequences. And for people living in Nazi Germany who were of African heritage... Everyone had different experiences, but as time went on, while the persecution wasn't as systematic, people were faced exclusion from certain jobs or education. Some people were sterilized. Even some people were taking concentration camps. However, for Johnny Smythe, he was just treated like a, a bit of a trophy. He was a bit of a propaganda coup. It was just this bizarre thing of a six foot four black man in an RAF uniform in the middle of Germany. So once he gets to the camp, he actually said, for 12 months, there was never black men apart from him, and he almost had to look into a mirror to remember that he was a black man. Life there, it was very monotonous, but he wasn't picked on for being black or anything like that. He was just another officer as a prisoner of war. However, there was one thing he did point out, which least told me a story about once. They were talking about whether you could ever do escapes and did people actually try and get out of, you know, because you see it in movies, you know, great escape and all that. Did it happen? And apparently, Eddie he said, Danny's father said, oh yeah, all the time, we, we were trying to break out. We had committees, we we're looking at it. And there was a story about one American officer who managed to get out and he was caught in woods afterwards. They dragged him back and, Put him back in the camp and the commanding officer of the prisoner of war camp said, how how have you managed to do this? You know, you, you can't get out of this camp. We hold people here. And he said, I've just vaulted over your fence. It's fine. I can do it. And the commanding officer went, yeah, I don't believe you. If you can do it, you can go. And so he just, he went, fine, I'll do it. So he ran out the fence, vaulted over and legged it into the woods and managed to get out. And unfortunately, he was captured. He was brought back. But everyone was laughing and clapping and the guards were. But Johnny, while he was on the committee, he was asked, in the early 90s by a, a reporter from the Times saying, so did you ever try and escape, you know? And he said, well, I think as a six foot four black man in Germany, I'm not sure I would have, I think I may have stuck out a bit like a sore thumb. And the reporter went, see your point, yes, that would be a problem. So, he, well, he wasn't treated badly in the camp. He knew there was no getting out for him from the escape route or that sort of thing.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense because there's a serious point there, isn't there? I mean... Black people in Nazi Germany were treated very badly. We had a fantastic scholar on the podcast recently talking about how Black and Roma peoples were sent off to different parts of places like Auschwitz and so on and so forth. But it would have been incredibly difficult for Johnny to escape, wouldn't it, Eddie? Yeah, impossible, because...
3: As he said to the Times reporter, yes, I think he said, yeah, I could just mingle with all the other six foot four black people in Germany at the time and go completely unnoticed. You know, (laughs) it was impossible. There's no way he could even think about it. But as Tim said, when he was in the camp, he was treated no different to anyone else. And he loved his time in the RAF. He never came across any racial issues in the RAF. You know, there's no prejudices whatsoever. They were just like one happy band of people. And he said, right up to the day he died, he used to say, I had some of the happiest days in the RF. He just loved it, because you banded together and united against the common enemy, you know, the common foe. When does Johnny's war come to an end, Eddie? Well, whilst they were in the camp, the only radio they used to hear was what the Germans used to broadcast through loudspeakers in the camp every day, and it was all propaganda stuff. And they used to hear Lord ho constantly, you know, talking about the fact that the Allies were being defeated, they were starving, homes were being bombed. And it used to say, it did used to get to them. And there was talk that an incineration factory was being built not far from the camp, because if the Germans won the war, they were all going to be incinerated. So there were all these stories going through. But what they were able to do, some clever officer was able to put together a small radio, just using bits of wires and stuff, and they could listen to the news. And this radio could easily be pulled apart. So when the guards were coming, in, or the goons as they call them, they would pull the bits and pieces apart. So they didn't realize that they could actually listen to what was going on. And they knew that the allies were winning the war. They knew the Russians were coming in from the east and they knew the British and Americans were coming in from the west. So they knew that was happening. And they used to pray for the day when the allies would get there and it was revenge time on the guards. They used to pray for that day. And then one morning they woke up and the guards were gone. The gates were open, there was no one there. Airy silence. So clearly the guards knew that the allies were close. And they also knew that if they were there when the allies got there, they were finished. The prisoners were going to rip them to pieces. They knew it. So they disappeared very quickly. And the Russians got there first, And my dad said they weren't sure whether to cheer or be scared because they just looked like wild men. But they were great. They were able to give them weapons, although they couldn't give them food, which meant they went out into the towns and did some foraging themselves, which I think was quite a horrific time because these were young men who had been brutalised. They'd been locked up for two years, and suddenly they were given weapons and they were told to go into the towns and get what food they needed. And my dad always said they did things which probably would regret with hindsight, but that's how it was at the time. And then eventually, transport was laid on, and he was put on a ship with his other fellow Brits, and they came back to London, where he immediately signed up for another tour.
2: Oh, wow. So he stays in the military?
3: Yeah, he stays, he comes back, and he signs up. Of course, by then, the war with Germany was over, But the war with Japan was still on. So he quickly re-enlisted and he said he was the only one from his camp that he knew who did that. But he was just eager to get back in there. And they started being retrained in um, Lancasters because it was a totally different type of bombing. But before they could become operational, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were dropped and the
2: war in Japan was over.
3: So that brought an end to his fighting career.
2: And that is a little-known part of history, actually, is that how the Lancaster bomber pilots and all the crews in the RAF and Bomber Command were being retrained and already doing the runs planned out for bombing Japan if that invasion and that operation was going to go ahead. Now, I would usually end the podcast there, but I can't. Because, if anything, Johnny's career, the most important things in his life, aren't really happening during the war. Because when you look at the history of his life, His life has just begun by this point. Eddie, if you can, give us a little bit of a history of what happens to your dad post-military. Well,
3: certainly post the war, he joined the colonial office in London. So technically, he was still an officer in the RAF, but he was working with the colonial office. And part of his role there was to look after the welfare of the ex-colonial military folk. And one of his most important exercise, if you like, was to do with the Windrush. So he was asked to go on board the Windrush, which was a captured German World War I ship, which was returning a large contingent of West Indian airmen who had been demobilized and were being returned back to the Caribbean. And so he was a senior officer on board. And the ship went out and visited all the different islands, dropping the men back off. When they got to Jamaica, the Jamaican labor officer came on board and said, look, you know, our country is paralyzed by a host of economic and social issues and employment is really high. Trying to take these young men back is nigh on impossible because we've got no work for them. So this was cabled back to London And Colonial Office authorised my dad, as a senior officer, to come up with recommendations on how to deal with it. And the captain gave him the cable and said, look, I've got my men at your disposal, because there are hundreds of these men on board. And he basically sat them down and he talked to them, he interviewed them, found out what their skills are. And in reality, most of these guys did not have skills. The ones that did have sort of academic ability and certain qualifications stayed in England to work and were actually given scholarships. So the people that chose to go back were people who didn't have any of these qualifications. So he said, right, you can come back to Britain under certain conditions. You have to be prepared to work. You have to decide what you're going to do now. And he went through them and some of them were offered vocational training. A lot of them signed up for manual work, but he went through it all, wrote out a report, his recommendations, and this was cabled back to London. And they said, fine, we'll accept it. And the boat then turned back and came back to Britain, which was with the Windrush generation. And he didn't realise this was a big deal till he got back and they were buzzed by a plane and a helicopter with a banner. And his girlfriend, my mother, who met him there, was holding a copy of the Daily Mirror. And on the front, it said, Johnny on the case. It had made the news. So that was quite an important part of his life. But... Part of his job when he was attached to the colonial office, as I said, was looking after the welfare of demobilized men and women. And some of these men, you know, they had physiological, psychological issues. They'd been traumatized during war. They had problems settling down and inevitably they had issues. And quite often he was called upon to sort out court martials. And his job was to defend any men that were under his care. Now, he had no legal training but he was a very articulate individual. He could present a case very well. So the first case he had to defend was an airman who was charged with assaulting another member of the RAF and breaking some furniture, which was a chair. So he went to court, he presented his case, and he won it. And the judge advocate at the time congratulated him on the way he presented the case. And so he went on to do several more. Great success. And this judge actually said, would you like to meet for lunch? And he goes, yeah, sure. And he was, oh my God, the judge wants to meet me for lunch. And he said, Johnny, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And he said, well, I want to stay in the RAF. And he said, well, you can't do that because the war is over. You can't keep flying. Have you thought about law? And he said, well, well yes, I have thought about law. And he goes, right, well, I will write you a letter of introduction to the Inns of Court in London. And with this letter, he went into Inns of Court and he got taken on as a graduate. And he went to law school and he studied and he qualified passed out as a barrister, married my mother and then went back to Sierra Leone.
2: (laughs) Wow, that is remarkable. Tim, did you know about this aspect of the story when you first stumbled across it? Did you know that Johnny had such a massive impact really on the history of London and of Britain more broadly? Because a lot of people who came off Windrush settled in London, didn't they?
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was little hints of it. I heard something about Windrush in him, but There was nothing of how instrumental he was in helping it and bringing people back. And like you said, the Windrush generation was so important for people in London. I mean, it really did help rebuild the sea. And across the UK, they were just such important people. And I mean, you saw in the just the amount of fanfare there was when the ship sailed into Tilbury Docks. And people were just so pleased to have them back. And, And they were so thankful that these people were here to
2: help rebuild Britain which makes the controversies under the uh, administration of Theresa May, of course, even more despicable. Eddie, now, Johnny's legal career takes him (laughs) to quite remarkable heights, doesn't he? I mean, you don't get much higher than some of the positions he reaches. I'm not going to give it all away, but tell us, where does his legal career take him?
3: Well, when he first goes back to Sierra Leone, he works for the government initially as a, as a junior lawyer, and he rises up through the ranks fairly quickly. And he ended up working as the Solicitor General and then the Attorney General to the country. And as Attorney General at that time, his role was quite wide ranging. And in 1963, he was invited by the United States Department in Sierra Leone to go over for a three months tour in the States. Uh, he managed to visit most of the large cities, historical sites. He did lectures in several leading American universities, Harvard, Stanford, Columbia, Howard and Yale. So he got to meet lots of people. He got to meet the then attorney general, who was Robert Kennedy. So he was, if you like, his counterpart in America. And um, whilst my dad was out there, he went on a visit somewhere in Las Vegas, and he actually rode a camel. And this camel bucked, and he ended up hurting his back. And when he met Attorney General Robert Kennedy, he was sort of limping, and he said, what's your problem? He said, I've I've hurt my back, and explain what happened. Anyway, he met him several times, and they they ended up having a, a really good relationship. He then invited him to the White House, where his brother, John Kennedy, was president of America at the time and asked his chiropractor to have a look at my dad's back so he's actually actually was treated by John Kennedy's chiropractor in the white house before coming back so he had a very very successful tour he enjoyed his time enormously he was awarded the OBE on the back of that he had already been awarded a military MBE he went back to Sierra Leone, continued working for government, but then he set up his own practice. So he created his chambers, he had quite a few other solicitors working for him, and uh, he also became a Queen's Counsel. And also, Sierra Leone attained independence in 1963, and he was very instrumental in the actual constitution of independence, in actually setting it up and liaising between Britain, because it was a British colony and they were seeking to get independence from Britain. So he was very instrumental in liaison with them in the writing of the constitution and the approval of the constitution, which enabled Leone to gain its independence.
2: Well, your father sadly passed away in 1996, I believe, but his story, his history as a war hero, his legacy is both fascinating and inspiring. Thank you so much, Eddie, for bringing us your family history. And Tim, thank you so much for bringing this story to the world pleasure i mean the world needs to know it really it's such a good story it really is it really is i wish i was a fly on the wall when your dad met jfk war hero to war <laughs> hero talking about their experiences because jfk of course didn't he swim something like five kilometers with a belt strap of his crewmate in his teeth and swam to an island i mean it's crazy stuff that's right. He was the captain of a particular small, light boats.
3: Yeah, PT boat. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, it was a fascinating story. You're right. They must have had some really interesting stories.
2: <laughs> and yet they ended up talking about their back. So, oh, oh, yes. Well, there you go. that's one thing that unites you both, isn't it? It's your war injuries and your bad backs. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast.
3: No, thank you, James. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to share this story. And thanks to Tim for raising the profile of the story.
2: Not at all. Yeah, thanks very much, James. Well, thanks again to Eddie and Tim. And for the first time on the Warfare Podcast, I can say we have a band to play us out. We have Dubweiser, which is Eddie's band, and they've written a new song about Johnny Smythe's life. It is a real earworm. It's going to stick in your head all day. It's a brilliant song, and we've got a full link to the music video in the bio for this episode. So check it out. <laughs>
3: them in the air. We will never, never, never surrender. Surrender.
5: From the lion Mountains, he came like a storm. Johnny came from Sierra Leone, an African uniform. Johnny came from Sierra Leone, an African, uniform. An African uniform. Johnny came from Sierra Leone, an African